0: X money, as I defined it, is something that's accessible. And so the physical proximity of like a bank doesn't apply to X money. Furthermore, X money is non-discretionary. There are no intermediaries and there are no people setting the monetary policy. So there's there's nothing to, I mean, there's no person to distrust. Okay, so... This means that the reasons that some people are unbanked are reasons for those people to prefer
1: to live in a world with X money. Welcome to the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast, where we explore the intersection of Bitcoin and progressive issues. I'm your host, Mark Stefani. Today's guest is Craig Warmke, professor of philosophy at Northern Illinois University. And no, he does not want to hear about how you stopped at the DeKalb Oasis some 20-odd years ago on your way into Chicago. What he does want to focus on are deep philosophical questions, ones that are most likely to scare away your dinner guests. Well, until now. Because today we are talking about Craig's most recent paper, Bitcoin Behind the Veil. This is arguably one of the most important pieces ever to be written on Bitcoin. I know that may sound hyperbolic, but I believe it to be true. And the reason is, we are all standing behind the veil at this moment. Before us is a new monetary system, one that we must examine with clear eyes and without bias. And Craig's paper provides us with that mechanism. I hope you enjoy the show. I hope it gives you a new way to approach and evaluate Bitcoin. Thank you so much for tuning in. I appreciate it. Craig Warmke, thank you so much for being on the Progressive Bitcoiner podcast with me today. Thanks, Dr. Mark.
0: It's good to be here. And I've appreciated your support on Twitter for the last couple of years. I've enjoyed chatting with you. And so it's nice to finally see you face to face.
1: Well, thank you. I feel exactly the same way, so thank you. Uh, Tell me, the listeners may not be familiar with you, so why don't you uh, give us a brief introduction, both personally and professionally?
0: Sure. Uh, My name is Craig Warmke. I am an assistant professor of philosophy at Northern Illinois University, um, which is in Northern Illinois. And uh, starting a few years ago, I got very curious about Bitcoin and started researching, and that led me to write some papers and... One thing led to another, and now I'm writing for a Bitcoin company, and Bitcoin consumes more and more of my thought life every day as a philosopher.
1: Perfect. Well, the listeners will have heard uh, in my introduction that today's topic will be regarding the veil of ignorance. Yeah. And while it is not a progressive issue per se, it is a model by which to examine issues of concern, and in our case... Bitcoin. It is a means by which to objectively look at something while I'm trying to minimize bias. So, before we get into the details of what it is, I would actually like you to just jump right into the the thought experiment for our listeners and walk us through that, if that's okay.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Mark. So, um, here's the thought experiment. So, suppose you wake up in a dark room, you can't see anything, you can't see your own body, and you don't know who you are or where you came from. And you hear a voice that says, uh, don't be afraid. Everything's fine. Um, You've actually signed a waiver and taken a pill that would erase all your personal memories. Any memory that relates in any way to who you are in the world. And this is temporary. It'll come back. So don't worry. But you, you have this ability right now to reason and to make decisions without knowing who you are or who you know in the world. And everything um, that you know then is uh, like statistical and factual and empirical, and it's not first person based. And then behind this veil, we'll call it, you have a decision, and the decision is to decide whether you'd like to live in a world that unbeknownst to you is this world, okay? Or live in a world Without a certain feature um, that is in the previous world. And what's that feature? That feature is something that we'll call um, X money. OK, and X money is not a particular money, it's just, it's just a, a more general kind of money. And it's a kind of money that meets these features. Well, first, it's a good form of money in that it's like fungible and transportable, doesn't easily degrade and so on. Okay, but in addition to these features, which just make certain things good, decent forms of money, um, it has these extra features, like, for example, being non-discretionary. So that that is the monetary policy doesn't isn't subject to human beings or their um, decision making processes. Uh, The money is accessible, like almost anyone in the world can access it. Uh, It's permissionless, meaning that anyone can interact with this monetary network. They can um, get some of it, um, they can uh, get rid of it <laughs> uh, fairly easily. And then it's, it's more or less private. You know, um, there's not a way for people to spy on your transactions, steal your personal info, and so on under best practices. So here's the question then. You have these two worlds, a world like ours, um, which has X money, and then a world without X money which one would you prefer to live in as an arbitrary person? So you don't know which person you would be if um, this world were actualized rather than a- another world. Um, so you would just be an arbitrary person. If you choose the world with X money, you'd be an arbitrary person in the other world. If you chose that world. Now this decision involves a certain level of risk because um, some people have better lives than others. And in the different worlds, you might think that certain groups of people are better off than other groups of people. So in choosing to be an arbitrary person in one world rather than another, you would probably want to use something like the rules of decision theory to calculate you know, the utility of being an, an arbitrary person in one rather than another. So this is in like rough outline how the thought experiment is to go. Um, you, get, you have these two worlds. One has X money and the other doesn't. And then the question is, just based on your personal preferences, your own, your own values, your own value judgments, your own personal preference, your own attitude about risk, which one would you rather be an arbitrary person in?
1: Because ultimately, in this thought experiment, you don't know which life you're going to be living or born into in said world. You could arrive at uh, the same position you are now. You could grow up in poverty, or you could be a king, right? But you don't know that. Right. You could be a prince. You could be a pauper. And what you do in the paper is walk through those scenarios, looking at the probability of being born into one of those scenarios. Ultimately, with the end conclusion is that you are a much higher likelihood of being in a position where you are in favor of x money that allows for yeah. uh greater permission accessibility etc yeah. and you're not running the risk of hoping for that you are going to be uh the king the politician the fed chair etc so that was perfect that was a, the veil of ignorance in a nutshell mm-hmm. why don't we take a step back then and actually tell us what it is specifically how it developed and why you ended up choosing it as the model by which to examine bitcoin
0: yeah, those are good questions, Mark. I mean, one, one reason I think it's valuable, even though it's not perfect and it's not gonna work for everyone, even most people. One of the reason I like it is because it forces a critic of someone who does not like something like X money to focus their objections in one of two ways. One way is to say, well, this is just a mathematical model for how to make the decision about what you would prefer. Do you have a, an issue with the mathematical model? And what the mathematical is is just a it's just a slight twist in the paper of orthodox decision theory of taking the expected value of an outcome, multiplying it by its probability, and then um, for any world, averaging that out for all the people in that world, and then um, uh, weighing it differently if you have a different attitude about r- taking risk. Um, so you might be riskier and you might risk being a popper at a higher chance if you value being a king or a prince more, you know? And so one way to object is to say, well, I, I have an issue with the mathematical model. And to date, no one has had an issue with uh, the mathematical model. And I don't think very many people would because it's just a mathematical model that it maps very closely onto Orthodox decision theory. Another way a critic might respond is to say, well, we need certain kinds of inputs. Okay. I mean, the The model just takes inputs. that's all it does, and that's all I offered it for. But the inputs are like what what are the utilities of being certain people in these two different worlds? And the reason why I think that's a nice feature of the thought experiment, where it forces people to give one of these two criticisms, is that we otherwise come to the table with very strong biases. So one bias is a bias that affects all kinds of people i mean everyone but all kinds of all kinds of people that are in debates about say bitcoin and this is the bias of self interest and this affects both sides it affects everyone so we all come to the table especially in political discussions with knowledge about where we are in the social spectrum so if i were to make a decision about the legality of bitcoin i'm a i'm a bitcoin holder right and so that's going to affect Um, what policies I would suggest. Uh, Someone who's a no-coiner, who uh, dislikes Bitcoin strongly, they are going to suggest different policies. And this is just what we should expect. But this holds very generally. And so people who are wealthier, on average, tend to favor lower taxes on, say, like capital gains. People who are poor don't favor those policies. (laughs) And this kind of bias of self-interest it it works in exactly the ways that we think about it. So imagine uh, winning a lottery where you go from being poor to being rich, and um, well, you'd expect, given this bias of self interest. But what we would expect is that maybe the previously poor person would um, favor higher taxes on the rich, and then once they become one of these rich people, they would um, no longer support a higher tax on the rich. And this is. There's a a recent psychological study on just this, and this is what happens. And so we're all subject to these biases of self-interest where when we try to decide what's best for everyone, we weigh our own position on the social ladder too heavily. And so one way we can use a veil of ignorance is to try to divest ourselves of our positions in the social ladder, the social web and pretend to not know who we are. Right. And then then if we use this model, we can just use the mathematical model with mathematical inputs and see what comes out.
1: I do want to talk more about the biases uh, and self-interest that you describe in the paper, but also I think it'd be helpful if we get a bit more granular. And why don't you mention the actual numbers behind the two examples that you give in the paper, both with banking and uh, inflation?
0: Yeah, very good. So there are all kinds of ways that we can provide inputs to the model to see whether or not we prefer to live in a world with, say, X money or not. And one kind of input that we, we can use is um, data about banking. And it turns out that among uh, around 8 billion people in the world, uh, something around a quarter to a third are unbanked. And there's been a recent study, this is a few years ago, but by the world, I think by the World Bank, About the reasons why people are on bank. And the reasons range from, well, I distrust banks, or the transaction costs are too high, or I don't have enough money to have a bank account, or physical banks are just too far away. So, some combination of cost, distance, distrust, and so on. So, that's an important data point. Now, X money, as I defined it, is something that's accessible. And so, the physical proximity of like a bank doesn't apply to X money. Furthermore, X money is non-discretionary. There are no intermediaries and there are no people setting the monetary policy. So there's, there's nothing to, di- I mean, there's no person to distrust. Okay, so this means that the reasons that some people are unbanked are reasons for those people to prefer to live in a world with X money. All right, now, let's say your chance of being an unbanked person due to some combination of the costs or distance or distrust is about one in 12. Not quite one in a billion then. Would you take the chance of living in a world without X money? If you are one of of these 1 in 12s, or would you rather live in a world with X money, you might be one of these persons who, who are unbanked, but you have this escape hatch. You have this way to interact financially with the rest of the world, which you otherwise wouldn't have. And I think most people would prefer to live in the world with X money, given the risk of being... Uh, one of these people who are unbanked. It's a substantial, it would be a substantial risk from behind the veil. One in 12. One in 12, that's pretty high. And it's a a serious risk because banking is a way that we've created a lot of wealth for the world and lifted people out of poverty. And the reason is because with banking, you can get credit. You can get money that you didn't previously have. And you can put that money to work to increase wealth for everyone. And if you don't have a bank, those kinds of uh, routes to upward mobility aren't available to you. Okay, so would you really want to take that risk? It's a serious risk. It's not Russian roulette, but it's it would be a risky choice.
1: And you go on to do the same example using real-world numbers for inflation. And again, the same conclusion is drawn that you're at a much higher chance of becoming somebody who is under double-digit inflation rates than you are uh, as an individual of North America, let alone the United States, let alone the top 1%, et cetera, of actually somebody who may not benefit from X money, correct?
0: Yeah, that's right. So the the chance of living as a person under runaway inflation in this scenario is about 1 in in 8, 1 in 7. There are between 1 and 2 billion people who live under regimes with runaway inflation, now, I'm not one of these people who thinks that we should live in a deflationary world. I don't think that. I think some low level, some constant low level of inflation is good and maybe even flexible in, in times of like economic emergencies. you know I'm okay with all of that. I'm okay. but runaway inflation every almost everyone or everyone agrees is bad it's It's bad for the economy, it's bad for people. I mean, just look at what. The Fed is doing now to try to combat seven percent inflation. Imagine what they would be doing with double digit inflation, okay? No one wants double digit inflation. Um it wreaks havoc on the on on communities and especially for people who have sticky wages. um their wages don't rise with inflation, and often what rises in inflation are the things that people are most competing after with their money, which is the essentials, energy, food, modes of transportation. This is exactly what we're seeing in the United States. Okay. So imagine it being two times worse than it is now here in the United States, somewhere else, three times worse, four times worse. Okay. That's not a kind of community that you want to live in because your savings just erodes. It melts like an ice cube and it disappears. And if you don't have financial access, to better stores of value, you're just SOL. Now, are you going to take a one in eight chance to be one of these people who lives under runaway inflation? One in eight? Or would you just rather have an escape hatch in case you are one of those people so you can save your money in a a very safe way with X money? And I I know what I would do. It seems like, like the choice is too easy. And so the reply would be, well, what would be the costs of having X money around? And,
1: and that's another issue. Right. And we'll, we'll touch on some of the critiques. But I think one of the things that you touch on in the paper and one of the elements of the model uh, that I think are very important is, is that it's not just about you and your choice and your risk comfort, but rather you also have to project outward with the knowledge that everybody else, around you in the world will be under the same regime yeah. so the same monetary system so you it, it pushes you towards a certain degree of empathy with regard to the current plight that we are, are facing yeah. not only within the united states if you don't have access to the assets that can protect your wealth t- uh, to an easier degree but also obviously uh, more globally so i think there's that additional component that uh, makes this model uh, beneficial so i want to circle back a little bit to talk about the model itself and its development and correct me if i'm wrong but it was uh more popularized by the political philosopher john rawls is that correct
0: yeah so rawls has a particular form of the veil of ignorance and it's the most famous form if you have some familiarity with uh philosophy especially political philosophy Rawls's Veil of Ignorance is the thing that you know about the Veil of Ignorance. And what he argues is that in this kind of situation where you don't know your social position and you're tasked with coming up with some principles of justice for how society would be ordered, you would come up with this principle called minimax, where you would want to have policies with the highest floor. Um, what does that mean? Well, the, the least off would be as, as good off as they can be. And so you wouldn't choose a world where, you know, three fourths of people are, are doing amazing, but at like severe, severe, severe cost to the bottom 10%. Uh, when you're evaluating these like different possible worlds, the ways the world could be, you would want one where those people are much better off and better off. In fact, the world where they're the best off. So the the highest floor, no matter how high or low the ceiling is. And so Rawls's veil of ignorance is not the only veil of ignorance. There was a, a version of the veil of ignorance that came before Rawls. And this was briefly described by a political philosopher named John Harsanyi. And what Harsanyi proposes is much closer to the way I do it, where you weigh the utilities, the total utility of the world, or the average utility of each person. It doesn't matter which. It's like mathematically equivalent. And then you just pick the world with more utility. And I think that is useful for my purposes, where I just want to help people decide or discover what they would think about the difference between these two worlds, just two worlds, and which is better. So we don't have to find the best. Um, We don't have to suppose as... Uh, Rawls does, that everyone basically follows the rules. We're just asking, between these two very similar worlds, which one would you prefer to live in as an arbitrary person? And so when we ask it this way, we aren't asking about very broad principles of justice or how to apply them. We're not asking about what the best principle for distributive ethics is, like the minimax rule. We don't need that. And we don't even have to import any... Heavy duty, like ethical uh, assumptions about you know what the right moral principles are. I'm I'm saying, bring whatever you want. Okay, scrap all your memories about who you are, and just you know, decide as a rational person. You now, which world would you you know like to be be an arbitrary person in? And so, all you need is some way to evaluate. Or how to assign utilities to people, which is which is no trivial thing to do. We probably can't do this, but we can provide a rough gloss. So assign utilities, and then uh, um, and then we know the probabilities because we know how many people there are, and then, so then just calculate as as Leibniz says. And so it's a less theoretically laden version of the veil of ignorance compared to Rawls. Um, no, no offense to Rawls. Rawls is, uh, of course, a great philosopher. But for this particular purpose, it's nice to have this kind of pared down version just applied to two worlds, just using the decision calculus.
1: So in your paper, you look at banking and you look at inflation and you draw the numbers that you discuss. But you also said that this, this model can also be looked at other categories that um, pertain to Bitcoin. I think it would be appropriate if we actually touch on privacy. The Federal Reserve just released their paper on CBDCs. Are you able to quantify any of the information out there that you'd be able to uh, apply the same model to privacy as it relates to Bitcoin and uh, CBDC?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think we could probably calculate in a rough way the costs and benefits of um, having something like X money in relation to this idea about privacy. So on the one hand... The people who perch atop the financial railways, who get to spy on the transactions, and they get to spy, or they want to spy, for a few different reasons. One, they like to settle disputes. The intermediaries are providing a service, and so they can lose money if they don't settle disputes in a a decent enough way. So you have to settle disputes as an intermediary. Their being an intermediary requires that they settle disputes and they want to prevent fraud, okay? Because they don't want to be defrauded <laughs> and they don't want their other customers to be defrauded. So they want to prevent fraud um, and they want to settle disputes. And because they have to spy on transactions in order to do these two things, well, that increases transaction costs, of course, because they, they want to make their business worthwhile. But that allows them to censor transactions, shutdown accounts, okay? So this issue of privacy and censorability, that's one that you want to keep an eye on. If you can spy on transactions, then you also, and if you also have the ability to censor, then these abilities will compound and you can censor things that you dislike. Okay, so that's one issue. That's hard to quantify. But there are two things that are easier to quantify. One is that, we, we have data on identity theft and like hacks and leaks of private data, and that costs. It costs as much recently in one of these recent years is over a trillion dollars. I've seen projections that it would cost the economy something like up to. I mean, this is probably globally up to ten trillion dollars uh, within the next few years. This is just. I mean, what from one trillion to ten trillion? Like that's just so much money. Um, it's hard to imagine. <laughs> like the scale of the, the cost, the costs that accrue to us. So I think it's reasonable to ask: is relying solely on majorities worth losing your private data to the tune of something like one to $10 trillion per year? Okay. Now, on the other side of this equation, then is why people like governments would like to spy on transactions. And it's more than the reasons that we just covered with respect to corporations, you know, like Square or Venmo. The government isn't really in the business of settling some of these, like, small financial squabbles and and fraud and so on, other than it goes to the justice system. The the reason that I think they like um, this ability to spy on transactions is... Twofold. One, to prevent something like a terrorist attack. So they have national security concerns. And that's a serious concern. That's a serious trade-off. Okay. If if there is a truly private form of money, there will be bad people who use it privately. This can also be true for such things as countries. Earlier I said that you know privacy and censorability are kind of connected in this way. And if countries Themselves as economic agents can transact privately, then you know they probably can't be censored either. And so, X money might also erode the power of a a power like the United States. Uh, X money might erode their power of economic sanctioning. And so that's that perhaps might be a cost. I don't have any data on economic sanctions. I've heard from some experts that they aren't as Effective and perhaps maybe counter-effective, counterproductive, but th- that would just be something, whatever it is, that would be part of the data that we need to fit into the model, whatever it is. We're not going to be gatekeepers about the data that goes into the decision making model. Sure. Like that stuff goes in, whatever it says, even if it's going to adversely affect the calculation in favor of X money. Right. It just goes
1: in. And that's, again, how the model becomes more objective. And minimizing bias and self-interest, which I want to touch on still. In the paper, you say, quote, people tend to favor proposals that would benefit themselves and reject proposals that at their own expense would benefit others, end quote. Mm-hmm. And I think this is something as progressives that we need to pause and be very candid uh, with ourselves and others to be able to stand in front of the mirror and own this because it is not only something that Plays out in the research, but also in our lives. For example, I'm in a liberal pocket of Minneapolis, mm-hmm. and a year or two ago, there was proposals for adding low rent housing within the neighborhood, and then rent controls. There were plenty of signs in the yards of my neighborhood opposing the idea. Mm-hmm. Neither bill passed. Right? Yeah. And so again, this plays out in the research as well. But you know, that's not necessarily a value. Judgment. I don't think it should be. It is uh, in our nature to defend uh, what is in our own self interest. I think we need to accept that and own that, but try to again see how we can do that while also maximizing the benefit of others. And that's where I see Bitcoin uh, uniquely positioned because I see it as both a savings technology as well as a philanthropic force. And so I'm wondering if, if you would agree that with using Bitcoin, does it move us further toward that benefiting others? Yeah. Since the more people that utilize the network, the greater the benefit is to all.
0: That's my view. <laughs> I think you put it very nicely, Mark. So, my frequent collaborator, Andrew Bailey,
1: right, right, um,
0: has a really nice YouTube video where he goes through a presentation uh, that he calls Bitcoin Alchemy. It's really good. And it builds on an idea from especially Alex Gladstein. And the idea is that Bitcoin is a machine that turns greed into freedom. And how does it do that? Well, people see the gains that Bitcoin holders often make. Not today, because <laughs> the, the market is tanking. So, But over time, Bitcoin's trajectory has been up. And so people buy in the hope of making money to satisfy their greed impulse. But their greed has propelled them to procure something that by procuring it, then they have these extra freedoms. You now have uncensorable money that you can transport to anyone in the world for basically free and basically instantaneously. That is amazing. (laughs) Um, And this has already helped a lot of people. And I think it will continue to help a lot of people in roughly the same way that the internet has helped people so the internet has helped a lot of people, but not without costs. The internet in, enables great evils, great numbers of them. So the number and magnitudes of evils that the internet has enabled is just enormous. But we still think it's worthwhile to have around. And why? Well, think about all the things that we have dematerialized with the help of the internet in a way that helps people. We have dematerialized the Library of Alexandria, you know, basically, where all the information that humanity has gathered and accumulated over the eons, well, now it's all available to people who can use Google with as something as simple as internet access and a internet-connected device.
1: And Bitcoin does that for money and banking for every person in the world. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. What are the critiques of the Veil model that you find most relevant? Yeah. I,
0: I was um, trolling Twitter this morning for um, criticisms to see if there were any good ones. I mean, the best one by far is Troy Cross's thread.
1: I saw it on Twitter. Troy was quite quite the Debbie Downer, wasn't well,
0: he? Well, yes, and no. I mean, um, it depends on how we read them. So <laughs> Troy says first. And let me back up a step because at the at the end of my paper, I say that I offer the models a kind of therapy. Um, it was said in a cheeky way, but it's it's offered as a kind of cognitive therapy, especially for, for critics of Bitcoin. And the reason I said that is because we have a lot of data. We have a lot of data already about how Bitcoin helps people and how it could help people. And the critics, for the most part, ignore this data. And so if you really want to work through whether or not you would prefer to live in a world with Bitcoin or not, Um, and Bitcoin is just an instance of X money in my view, so that's that's what the decision ultimately amounts to. Then, well, what things are you going to put in as inputs? Well, the critics already ignore these reasonable inputs into the model. Data about banking, data about inflation, data about remittances, data about privacy, okay? They just ignore these things. And so I say, well, you know, perhaps the model can be used as therapy then, because you're supposed to just take whatever data comes in and just, you know, calculate. And so Troy wants to call into question whether the decision model could actually help in this way. Um, if it's genuine therapy, he says some minds should change, and we're not going to see that happen. ok? So it's not good therapy. He doesn't put it as unqualifiedly as that, but um it's basically what he's saying. And the reason he says that is because we'll just continue to rationalize what, what benefits us. Um, and our biases are just going to bleed into how we use the model. We won't be able to use the model well, say, if it should lead us toward preferring Bitcoin world, um, but we don't like Bitcoin. And I guess my response to that one is that, well, first, I want to thank Troy for the thoughtful thread. and And two, I think he's, generally correct about our ability to overcome our biases. They aren't transparent to us for the most part. But my response is that, well, genuine therapy takes commitment. (laughs) Um, And you can have a good kind of therapy that is ineffective for most people because most people aren't going to want to put in the work. And I think that's basically what's going on with this kind of model. So, for example, some of the responses I got on Twitter came from some well-known critics or well-known people in uh, the finance or Bitcoin industry. And it's clear that they hadn't even read the article. <laughs> or if they didn't read the article, they missed, they missed the entire point. You know, And so people who have biases so strongly that they, like it prevents them from reading at all or reading well, well, yeah, therapy is not going to work for them because they have to actually get to the therapy first um, and understand what it is. And so my response would be, not everyone is hopeless in this way. Some people can really commit to it. And I know this from personal experience that it's possible to make big changes in what you believe is true, even at personal cost. So I've changed my mind about big things over the last 10 years at personal cost, and it's possible. I'm not saying that that makes me a saint. What I'm saying is the opposite, is that if I can do it, I know that smarter and better people can. I'm grumpy. I am self interested and selfish. And if I can change my mind, uh, I'm also not that smart. You know, I work hard. I'm not that smart. And it, so, smarter and better people are around. They can do it if I can. That's the point. And then the second the second response to Troy would be that. The veil, as I discuss it and as I design the thought experiment, it requires empirical data, okay? And so if someone has a, a problem, like someone like Joe Kelly on Twitter, who thinks the, <laughs> my whole paper is just biased, it's just, I, I just offer an invitation. Well, show me empirical data that X money would be bad, okay? Like that. that's, it's just an invitation. So a full commitment to this therapy requires gathering data, not ignoring it and using it. And then the, the, the cars fall wherever they fall. So I think this functions in part as a check against Troy's worry. I fully grant that the problem is as tough as he thinks it is. I just think that there are some people who can overcome it because they're willing to assess the data for what it is. Otherwise, why do we do anything? Why do we engage in any kind of argument?
1: So I think if we go back and if you take the freedom and greed uh, statement that you said, yeah. just replace greed with self-interest, right? Yeah. And, and again, Bitcoin is the unique situation where even if you're entirely self-interested and you don't care about any of the other statistics that you propose in the, in the paper behind banking and inflation, that self-interested person is still going to impart benefit on Everybody else who is holding Bitcoin. So in my opinion, can correct me if I'm wrong, if you feel differently, that the self-interest component yeah. is almost negated yeah. because of Bitcoin's properties.
0: Yeah, maybe so. That's a, that's a nice point. And also what you said there just made me think of a closely related point, which is that the, the model, by asking people about whether they themselves would be would rather be an arbitrary person in one world rather than another. It plays on their own self-interest, right? As long as they're honest about what they prefer, I think maybe some aren't. Um, It's hard to admit when you're wrong or when you change your mind. But
1: Absolutely. And again, to encompass the model itself, uh, it's not going to change everybody's opinion overnight across the board. But I still think it to be an incredibly important model to evaluate Bitcoin, to evaluate the issues that you care about. Because what it does, just like any other thing that is challenging in life to address, to change for oneself, it takes that initial step through the door to be able to peer in and start to push yourself towards that introspection with regard to not only your own needs, but the needs of others. And I believe that this model does that. And so I'm incredibly grateful that you put this paper together Any final thoughts on the paper itself? I do have one more, two more questions rather, uh, before we finish.
0: No, I mean, I'd be interested in what people think about it. So if anyone would like to read it and uh, give me some feedback, um, that would be great because we'll be using a version of this kind of argument in a book that I'm writing with Andrew Bailey and Bradley Rettler um, called Resistance Money. So you can go to the website, resistance.money. And uh, find the chapter and find some of their work. And so your feedback would be helpful for
1: us as we um, continue to write the book. Perfect. And want to double click there on the fact that you, Bradley Rettler, and um, Andrew Bailey are writing a book. And I think we all uh, can't wait for that to come out. My second to last question here is money, the topic of money. Yeah. uh, Why is there not more philosophical? examination of something that is omnipresent?
0: Yeah, that's a a really good question. I mean, so it's not that there is no philosophical work on money. A, A really nice resource for finding the literature on the philosophy of money is the Stanford encyclopedia entry on the philosophy of money and finance, which is available for free. So if you Google Stanford encyclopedia, philosophy of money, it'll probably be the first result. And there, is, there has been quite a bit of work, but not compared to a lot of other areas of philosophy, which are even, in my view, less important to the human condition. So I think your question is just so great. Why hasn't there been more interest in money? I think, I mean, I have a, I have a few hypotheses. I don't know how good they are, though. I mean, one hypothesis is just that this is like this was just a kind of path-dependent contingency where um certain arguments in political philosophy just drew more mind share. And so people were just led away from questions about money and finance. Another hypothesis is that people feel a little icky talking about money, um especially philosophers. And so maybe, It's then a dual effect of not only being pulled into other areas, but slight pushes away from money also. Otherwise, I don't have much of an idea. I mean, and in my view, some of the most interesting stuff written about money is written, of course, by economists. Especially when it comes to Bitcoin, you know, some of my favorite papers that are that are more philosophical. Uh, I'll, I'll mention two in particular. One is George Selgin's paper on synthetic commodity money. This paper is highly philosophical, and it's really good work, And uh, but Selgin is an economist and not a philosopher, uh, at least according to how we divvy things up in the academy. And then another paper is, I forget the title, but um, Will Luther has several papers on um, the economics of Bitcoin, and several of them are more philosophical. And one of them discusses the difference between decentralization, and being distributed, and whether or not Bitcoin is decentralized or distributed, a distributed network. That's a, and that's a philosophical issue, and it's one that's um, that Will has done a very good job with. And so I hope that in the near, maybe not in the near term, that's maybe being too optimistic, but in the medium long term, these issues come to the forefront For more philosophers, precisely because, I mean, these issues are so important. They affect us. We care about them, whether they make us feel icky or not.
1: In the previous podcast uh, with Troy and Andrew, I joked about uh, the School of Athens. And so maybe someday uh, here in the near future, we'll have filled up the School of Athens with uh, contemporary faces of our Bitcoin philosophers.
0: That would be great. Um, Have you seen the painting, Raphael's painting of? Plato and Socrates and the other philosophers? The School of Athens? Oh, okay. You were actually talking about the painting already? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, okay.
1: (laughs) Okay. Oh, there it is. There it is. Okay. (laughs) Now, who would you be? Who am I? Yeah. I'm I'm, I'm Raphael just hiding in the corner. Oh, okay, yeah. The introvert in the corner.
0: Yeah, very nice. When I was hired here at Northern Illinois, there had already been a version of the Nighthawk painting, if you're familiar, like the, the painting of the diner um, by I think Ed Hopper, mm-hmm. and uh, one of our former students who's now a professor at Princeton, she had replaced each of the people in the original painting with people in the department. And then when I was hired, they like this is like one of the kindest things anyone's ever done. They she like redid it um, so that I could be in the in the Nighthawk um, painting. It's on it's it's and that painting is still on the department website. And the reason I bring this up is because. The two philosophers who are in front, at the front of the painting, are doing the Plato-Socrates thing, where someone has the finger up and one of us is, "Eh, maybe not so much.
1: (laughs) You're the one with the the grumpy finger down.
0: Yes, that's right. (laughs) Right. So uh,
1: on on that note, Grumpy Craig, uh, what what gives you hope?
0: You know, that's a great question. Um, I have two main sources of hope. One source of hope is uh, Bitcoin itself, because I think it's a, a nice competitive check on some of the ways in which the world is going not so well. And I have lost a lot of faith in our public institutions over the last couple of years, especially. I mean, my faith wasn't very high to begin with, um, but it, now it's it's sunk to an all-time low. It's gone lower than the Bitcoin price today. And- <laughs> It just red candle after red candle, my public faith. And this is like, you know, government institutions, um, schools and universities, the media. Um, I just have no faith in these things. Um, but I think that Bitcoin can help play a role in riding the ship. I hold out hope for that, even though I don't think Bitcoin is a panacea in any sense. I don't think it's going to solve all our problems. I don't think it's going to prevent us from going to war. I don't think, you know, whatever. Um, but I think in small ways, it can help the world in lots of different areas. Right. And then my, my other, you probably didn't expect the episode to go, <laughs> to go religious, but my other source of optimism is, is my religious faith. And this is one of the ways in which I mentioned earlier, I made a big decision at personal cost. I converted to Eastern Orthodox Christianity in 2015. And that's my only like real source of hope. And the reason is because I don't, it's kind of um, maybe depressing to most people. I have no expectation that the world will actually get better. I don't. It may get worse. In fact, maybe it will. And, you know, the early Christians, many of them were martyrs. And not just martyrs, but they were joyful in martyrdom. And I think of that, and I and I compare that to what people do now, which is they try to bend, even religious people I have in mind particularly, they try to bend the will of the state to benefit themselves. This is not something that you do under the veil, and this is not what the early Christians would do. The early Christians were martyrs, And so the source of hope there then is the hope of, what might be made right in an afterlife for everyone, and uh, actually, you know, I can plug Andrew Bailey and Brad again because they're actually co-authoring a work um, along these lines about universalism—the view that God will make the world right for everyone, not just some elect number of people.
1: Uh, much like Bitcoin, maybe. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's. it's, it's, it's <laughs> I, I had to go there. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: yeah anyone god will say that everyone just like bitcoin
1: right yeah Craig, thank you so much this was a fantastic conversation i'll link to everything in the show notes for for the paper and your work i really appreciate your time i know it was a busy week for you thank you very much
0: thanks mark it's just so good to talk to you hope we can chat again and uh well wishes to you and your family
1: thank you